0: This message was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. This morning I have the privilege of preaching from Mark 14, verses 32 through 52. As Bill taught us last week, Jesus and his disciples have just experienced the Last Supper together where Jesus predicted again that he would be betrayed and deserted. And now they left the comfort and intimacy of the Supper, the upper room, And they've made their way to Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane, where we will see the resolve of Christ tested as He contemplates the cross before Him. Gethsemane was located on the Mount of Olives below the city of Jerusalem. Jesus and His disciples had been here often, as we read in the other Gospel accounts. But those previous visits were very different than tonight. On this night, in this valley, the cross is now imminent. Jesus, who just a few days earlier was beautifully anointed by Mary, is now preparing to be poured out for many. And as we will see, the surrender of Jesus in the dark valley of Gethsemane set the stage for what was about to happen above the city on the hill of Golgotha. So please turn to Mark 14 and read with me. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. So preach, pray, pray with me. Father, we thank You for Gethsemane. I pray that You would open up this passage now and reveal more of Your love and mercy to us. Speak to us now, I pray. Amen. Julius Caesar rose to prominence in 55 B.C. He was not the obvious man to lead Rome to dominate the world. However, key alliances in defeating Rome's biggest enemies vaulted him into prominence and positioned him to lead Rome from a republic to an empire. Following his military success, he turned to the Roman government. He enacted several measures for broader participation in the Roman Senate and opened citizenship to those outside Rome. He was surprisingly generous to many of his opponents, including a supporter of Pompey, who he had defeated, a man named Marcus Brutus. However, Caesar's Caesar's ambitious power grabs through political reform alienated many of his friends. When he declared himself dictator for life in 45 B.C., he sealed his own fate. Threatened by Caesar's growing power, a group of conspirators, led by Brutus himself, plotted against him. And on the Ides of March in 44 B.C., Caesar was famously betrayed and killed. In his play, Julius Caesar, William Shakespeare writes these words, Cowards die many times before their deaths. The valiant never taste of death but once. Of all the wonders that I have yet heard, it seems to me most strange that men should fear seeing that death, a necessary end, will come when it will come. Caesar knew his death would come. It came much earlier, though, than he hoped and in a way that he didn't expect. A few decades later, in the shadows of an increasingly powerful Roman Empire, another man would find himself in the midst of a plot for betrayal. And of course, this is Jesus himself. In Shakespeare's play, we see Caesar contemplating life and death as this tragic betrayal unfolds. And here in Gethsemane, we find Jesus contemplating His own death as His betrayal looms. But this is a much, much different story. As we consider this passage, we will see two dramatic scenes unfold. The, the prayer and the betrayal of Jesus. In the, in, in the midst of these two scenes, we will observe two significant interactions. First between Jesus and His Father, and then between Jesus and His followers. My hope is is that we consider the struggle of Gethsemane and we see the intimacy of the relationship with the Father and the Son. As we see His submission and His obedience, that we will be reminded today that because Jesus persisted in Gethsemane, He will always, always persist for us. So let's turn our attention to our first scene, the prayer of Jesus, where we observe this relationship between Jesus and the Father. We join the story as Jesus tells the disciples to sit while I pray. And then He takes His friends, His closest friends, Peter, James, and John with Him further into the garden. And here Jesus became greatly distressed and troubled. In verse 34 He says to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And then Jesus steps away, further into the darkness of the garden alone. In verse 35, Jesus falls on the ground and prays that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Mark's words show the depth of Jesus' emotions, the fear of what is coming. He is distressed. He has a deep sense of alarm. He is troubled and sorrowful, burdened with grief and despair. The words of Jesus in the garden remind us of David's words in Psalm 42. Just like David, Jesus was a deer panting for water. Desperate for God, his tears were his food, his soul was in turmoil and downcast. He felt oppressed and forgotten. Even his posture speaks to his desperation as Jesus falls to the ground, pleading to his Father. Luke tells us that Jesus was praying so earnestly that his sweat was like drops of blood. He was in a moment of agony, facing a fierce battle within his soul. So why? Why was Jesus in such agony and fear? Why would Jesus make this request of the Father to remove the cup? As I read earlier from Shakespeare, cowards die many times before their deaths, the valiant never taste of death but once. Wouldn't we expect Jesus in this moment to willingly take hold of His calling, to be the hero in this story? Was He just being a coward in the face of death? He Himself said must happen. Well, of course not. The struggle in Gethsemane represented something much bigger. Something so unfathomable that it stretched the very Son of God to the limits of His humanity. In His despair, Jesus asked if the hour might pass from Him and if the Father would remove this cup from Him. Both the hour and the cup speak to the purposes of God the hour, the appointed moment when God's redemptive work would be completed. Jesus often spoke of this hour. And now it presses down on Him. Jesus calls out, Abba, Father. He used this term before, but more formally and usually with the phrase, who art in heaven, who is in heaven, to properly glorify His Father. But the language Mark uses here tells us that the use of Abba, Father, reflects the unique intimacy of Jesus and his father, This is the cry of a son in need of his father's help. Here we see both the intimate relationship of the father and the son and the painful reality in the heart of Jesus as he contemplates his father's will. Jesus desired the intimate comfort of the father that he had received so often before. However, as his struggle grows and he, as he senses this very intimacy is about to be broken. Jesus, acknowledging God's sovereign power, prays that all things are possible for you. And then He asks the Father to remove this cup from Him. The cup now placed before Him is a metaphor for the wrath of God. A cup of wrath full of evil, full of sin. We simply cannot understand how Jesus felt in that moment as He considered the taste of the dregs of God's wrath against sin. The taste... Of being forsaken by his Abba Father. William Lane writes in his commentary on Mark The dreadful sorrow and anxiety, then, out of which the prayer for the passing of cups springs, is not an expression of fear before a dark destiny, nor a shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering and death. It is rather the horror of the one who lives wholly for the Father at the prospect of alienation from God, which is entailed in the judgment. Upon sin, which Jesus assumes. The whore anticipates the cry of being forsaken on the cross. Jesus came to be with the Father for an interlude before His betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven, open before Him. And He staggered. As Jesus looks into the cup the Father is placing in His hands, He sought the comfort of His Father, but instead He found alienation as His Father prepares to pour out His judgment upon Him. It's no surprise then that Jesus would stagger as He considers drinking this cup. He remembered the cup of staggering from Isaiah 51, verse 22. Thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of His people, Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of wrath, you shall drink no more. And so Jesus, with openness and honesty before His Father, pleads His case. He asks if there's any way that this cup of staggering can be removed from Him, like God did in Isaiah. Perhaps there is another way, a way for the cup to pass. But Jesus would find no comfort this night from His Father. Removing the cup from the hand of Jesus was not His Father's will. The word Gethsemane is generally believed to mean oil press. So here among the oil trees in Gethsemane, there likely would have been an oil press. A large stone vessel with a grinding wheel used to apply pressure to ripe olives and press them into olive oil. An incredibly valuable commodity in those days. Olive oil was used for cooking, for lamp oil, for heating, for ointment, for cleaning and anointing. In those days, olive oil was a necessity. It was vital for life. In the same way that olive press was applied pressure to the olives to give life-giving oil, here in Gethsemane we see the Father applying pressure to His own Son because this is the only way to give life to those He would redeem. God is pressing down the reality of what it feels like to endure His wrath toward the sins of men and women, past, present, and future, our sins, on the body of Jesus Christ. God is crushing his own son. Rather than remove the cup from his son, his will is being forged into the servant we read about in Isaiah 53, the one who will be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Pastor Sinclair Ferguson writes at this moment that Jesus was about to be exposed to the one thing he really feared. Not the cruel death which would end it. He knew he would rise again. But the indescribable experience of feeling himself to be God forsaken. He felt he could not live. Indeed, that life was not worth living without the consciousness of the Father's love for him. Jesus, in this moment of great loneliness and despair, separate from his friends, increasingly separate from the Father, knows that it's the Father's will for him to drink the cup, and to suffer, to be forsaken by His Abba Father. But there was no other way. The cup would not pass. He must drink it. Because this moment points back to another memorable moment in another garden, the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3, we recall that Adam and Eve had just sinned against God by giving in to the temptation of the serpent and eating from the tree of good and evil. God speaks to them in verse 15 when He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God proclaims here that one will come to bruise the head of the serpent as God's anointed. One who would make all things right and restore fellowship with God. And I think the memory of this moment in Eden was very much on Jesus' mind in Gethsemane. Jesus came to earth in humility, setting aside His glory. He knew the cross would come. Here in the garden, Jesus faced an unimaginable battle of wills. He knew the will of the Father was for Him to drink the cup. Yet when He looked into it, when He considered it's evil, it's vileness, Jesus asked if there was any other way. As God begins to place His wrath on His shoulders, the weight of all sin from the Garden of Eden to the return of Christ pressed down heavily upon Him. This was more than just the pressure of physical death. Jesus was facing the humiliating and excruciating suffering that only His death would bring, bearing the burden of God's full judgment for sin. His agony in this moment was not from the fear of death, but from the deep awareness of God's wrath against sin and the realization that He, the very Son of God, would be forsaken by His heavenly Father as He took this wrath upon His shoulders. The one He cried out to is Abba, His dear and loving Father. He felt the painful reality that the Father would soon turn away from Him. Bearing this burden was far greater than physical death. The cup Jesus was asked to drink was not just death, but the kind of death that made it bitter. He was tormented with fear and anguish in this moment because he didn't want to experience the darkness of being forsaken. Nothing in Jesus Jesus could make him want to drink this cup. It went against everything within him. But because Adam and Eve were told to eat from the tree, to not eat from the tree, but did... And because of the judgment and consequences that followed for all mankind, Jesus must now drink the cup. He must face another tree, the tree of Calvary. Jesus was the one who would reverse the curse of Eden. Just as olives are pressed and beautiful life-giving olive oil is produced, Christ would endure His own press. The burden of God's wrath for sin on His body. Jesus would be the one who would bruise the heel head of the serpent once and for all. He would press down the serpent in defeat. The burden of sin that had entered in the world in the Garden of Eden was now handed to God's Son in the Garden of Gethsemane. And with that burden now clearly in view, Jesus says these most comforting words for us. Words that should solidify our faith and trust in Him as our Savior this morning. Yet not what I will, but what you will. William Lane writes to this, that just as a rebellion in a garden brought death's reign over man, submission in Gethsemane reversed this pattern of rebellion and sets in motion a sequence of events which defeated death itself. And as we come to the end of this dramatic scene, we see the tone begin to change. In verse 41, Jesus said, It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The uncertainty and confusion in Jesus now seems resolved. Jesus has stood up from the ground of Gethsemane and He's once again set His face toward the cross. Jesus would submit to the will of God. Jesus would be obedient to His calling. He would stand firm in the face of difficulty and opposition. He would drink the cup of His Father's will. He would be forsaken for us. And on the cross, Jesus would consume this cup of wrath. The cup we deserve. He would pour Himself out. And because He did, the empty cup of God's wrath can now be filled with the blood of His covenant to us. He would fill the empty cup of wrath poured out on him for sin with the heart healing, life giving grace of his blood. It is enough. He is enough. Jesus persisted for us. And so now we turn to the second scene in our drama his betrayal. And this gives us an opportunity to consider the interaction of Jesus and his followers. So, first, let's look back and consider Jesus and the eleven. No longer twelve since Judas has left them at the supper. Jesus brings His remaining disciples, His closest friends, with Him into the garden. He leaves most of them to keep watch and ventures deeper into the garden with Peter, James, and John. While He may have desired their companionship in the darkness of the garden, it seems the main reason He took them with Him is He wanted them to overhear His prayer to the Father, to remember this moment, to burn it into their minds for the future. In verse 34, Jesus asks him to watch as he goes to pray alone. He returns to find him sleeping and says to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not not enter into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus refers to Peter as Simon. A reference that was likely to remind Peter of who he was before he met Jesus, to remind him of his weakness and his need for Christ. Jesus goes again to pray and returns a second time to find them asleep. Mark records that their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer him. And then he came a third time. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Here were his three closest friends, the ones who were so confident in him. Jesus had often warned them to be watchful already. They were with Jesus during the transfiguration. James and John said they could drink the cup that Jesus would drink. They had all declared their willingness to share in Jesus' sufferings. Surely these three would stand with Jesus unto death. When Jesus predicted they would all fall away, Peter boldly declared that even though they fall away, I will not. And even when Jesus tells Peter he will deny him three times, Peter emphatically states, if I must die with you, I will not deny with you. And as Mark tells us, the other disciples all said, the same. But here in the garden, they could not even pass their first test. And when Jesus confronts their inability to pray and stay alert, they were silent. And then there's Judas. Judas is one of the twelve, as Mark notes when he arrives. He had been with Jesus throughout his ministry, he had heard Jesus' teachings, he had heard every sermon of Jesus. And the sad irony is that Judas had almost certainly been here in Gethsemane with Jesus before, most likely to pray. And so it made sense that he would assume this is where they would be following the supper. Jesus had predicted his betrayal earlier in the evening, and now the time had come. In verse 43, we see Judas arrive, but he's not alone. He brings with him a crowd from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders armed with swords in clubs. And Judas had given him that fateful sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. It seems Judas expected resistance, so calling out Jesus as rabbi and sealing his betrayal with the kiss would quickly identify him and enable the crowd to capture him, avoiding making a scene in the garden. Judas arrives, completes his task, And it's not mentioned again by Mark. The focus then turns to the crowd who Judas brought with him. This was not a random mob. It was an official party from the high priest himself. They laid hands on him. They seized him. Chaos followed as one of those who stood by. John says it was Peter, of course. Drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. And then in the midst of this chaos that has now ensued, Jesus speaks. Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. What a different scene this is from the scene that we just saw with Jesus and the Father. As we step back from the chaos, it becomes clear to us. But none of these other players in this story, in this drama of Gethsemane, not even Jesus' own followers, truly understood who Jesus was at that moment. He was not a zealot ready to start a riot or a common thief as he was treated by the armed crowd, a crowd who couldn't even identify him without the kiss of Judas. Judas' own disciple had given up on him and betrayed him. The eleven, including Peter, James, and John, the ones who had pledged their allegiance to him, realizing Jesus will not resist arrest and disregarding all His predictions about being seized and killed, still don't understand who Jesus really is. And so, they all left Him and fled. The use of all here in the original language is emphatic to emphasize that all, everyone, all of them left Him and fled. So in the end, we see Jesus, all alone, betrayed. His friends, His followers have left Him. He arrived in the garden with His closest friends, seeking refuge from the Father. But He leaves with no one but His fiercest enemies. All have turned away from Him. And even more painful is the growing realization that His own Abba Father will soon forsake Him on the cross. It was a somber ending to the drama of Gethsemane. So how can we apply this today? Where do we find ourselves in the story of Gethsemane? Well, I think the answer is back in verse 49. At the end of this verse, Jesus says, but let the Scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus' words here are a reference to Isaiah 53, verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus was numbered with the transgressors. The thieves, the robbers, the murderers, the blasphemers, and by doing so, we find ourselves in this drama we are those that chose to be numbered with the trans- we are those that jesus chose to be numbered with to be numbered with the transgressors like the disciples like judas like the crowd we would not have stayed over there that evening praying we would have slept we would have betrayed him we would have shown up with the crowd to arrest him we would have all fled It was our sin, our failures, our lack of love for God, our disobedience that filled the cup of wrath that Jesus had to drink. But in that moment, when Jesus stared squarely into that cup and saw the evil of men, all the offenses against God Himself, He looked through the cup to the compassion of His Abba Father. And in that moment he saw that by pouring out his soul to death, by being numbered with the transgressors, by drinking the cup before him, by persisting in the garden so he could bear the sins of many on the tree, that he would produce a joy that would make the bitter taste of the cup worth it. He saw the joy set before him and he persist, persisted in the garden because of his deep love for us. And it is in that joy set before Christ that we find our application today. Jesus took joy in Gethsemane because He knew that through His obedience, we could be reconciled to the Father and share in the intimate fellowship of Jesus and the Father. Sinclair Ferguson writes again, Yet the fact He entered that darkness and experienced such grief is the source of all of our comfort. It assures us that He understands our darkest hours, the more it means that He has drawn the sting from our darkest hour for He has entered our God-forsaken condition so that we might share His God-accepted relationship to the Father. Amen. If you are not a Christian, the Gospel is for you today. The sting of death has been taken away through the work of Christ. Jesus entered our darkest hour, our sin that separated us from God. He lived a perfect life. He suffered and died a horrible God-forsaken death for us. He drank the cup of God's wrath for our sins, the cup that we deserve. God accepted His sacrifice and raised Him up in power. Through faith in this work on our behalf, we can now be accepted by the Father. We were dead in our sins, but because Jesus persisted for us in the garden and died for us on the tree, we can be made alive in Him through faith. This is the gospel He offers you today. Jesus took joy in Gethsemane because He knew that those same disciples who fled would be the very ones who would learn the lesson of Gethsemane. They would learn the lesson of Calvary. Who would finally understand who He was Himself. And He would restore them to build His church. And teach it to pray. And to be sober-minded. And to resist the devil. And to be spiritually prepared. If you're struggling in your faith today, struggling to understand, to fight temptation, to stay awake spiritually, there is hope found here in Gethsemane. Just like the disciples, Jesus can restore us. He can build our faith and restore the joy of our salvation. He can meet us in our weakness and give us strength. Jesus took joy in Gethsemane knowing that because He persisted for us, we can receive the comfort that He didn't find in the garden. We can receive the comfort of God's promises in His Word. His obedience guaranteed that every single promise of God in Scripture would always, always be a comfort for us. Every one of them. And finally, Jesus took joy in Gethsemane, knowing that He would sustain us in the moments we cannot stand in our own strength. In those moments, He wants us to follow His example, to pray honestly, to express our real feelings to Him, to persist in our request, but always saying, yet not what I will, but what you will. Maybe you find yourself in a moment of great need right now. Or maybe that moment is just around the corner. But whenever you come to your garden, your moment of struggle, despair, Loneliness or betrayal, moments of questioning God's will, moments of lacking faith, when your face is in the dust covered with sweat and tears of distress and trouble, the same Jesus who persisted for you in the garden, will meet you right there. The one who now sits at the right hand of the Father and sympathizes with our weakness and intercedes for us, the same Jesus who, in anguish and on the ground of Gethsemane, on the ground of Gethsemane, he will come alongside you and weep with you. He understands your tears. He understands your pain. He knows because He's been there. And He is enough. Christ laid His soul to bear on the dirt of Gethsemane so that He could carry our burdens to the cross. He faced the hour. He drank the cup. It was enough. Christ was enough. And only hours after He spoke those words, it is enough. He would cry out, it is finished on the cross. Because of Gethsemane, He will always be with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. In your deepest night of fear and darkness, because of Gethsemane, Jesus will always persist for you. Father, we praise You this morning for sending us Your Son, Jesus, to persist for us to be obedient for us, to become sin for us, to drink the cup we deserved, so that through Him, through His righteous work on our behalf, we may become the righteousness of God. We give You all the glory for what You have done for us. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.